Hello again, this is Charlie Belfontaine, and you're listening to the Home Buyers Hour on WCPT AM820, where the facts matter. And we have with us in the studio Dave Urbaniak of App Properties. Uh, Dave's claim to fame, and I'm going to say it's famous, is going to be what I consider his knowledge about investment properties and you know the amount of leverage that we have um, when our home buyers are buying a home. And then Joey, Joey's remotely with us, and Joey's going to talk to us about the Fed update. But before he does that, Joey, tell us about your company. How do they get hold of you? And what is going on on this holiday weekend? Yes, yes, sir. So Joey Matthews, NMLS 1330694, the VA loan nerd. Um, yeah, so I mean, financially, we, we actually have some some news today. We have the Fed meeting minutes getting released at... Uh, what is it? 1 p.m. Uh, Central Time. So, and that's the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. That's when we record this show. I apologize. No, you're, you're good. I'm just I'm just going to chime in and speak when I'm not spoken to. <laughs> no. So, um, so we've seen some improvement in the market today, not just in uh, bonds, but also in stocks. So people are buying both right now. It looks like. Um, I, I think it's a little uh, early for that to be happening. There's just a lot of speculation that we're going to see some uh, a little bit of disjointed opinion on continuing to raise rates significantly. Um, and there, there's really no reason for us to assume that that's going to happen. So I think 2 p.m. we're going to see some volatility. Um, I would say if you have the ability to lock before then, go ahead and do that. Uh, I've been talking about mortgage rates. Um, but yeah, I mean that's that's the big thing on the horizon uh, right now. So, so do we'll you think we're happens. at the top? I mean, you know, I know you can't predict what anybody's going to do or the future. We're if we could do that, we'd be millionaires, right? But yeah, um, sure. I, I still value your gut feeling. Do you think we're they're going to start easing back, or you think they're still going to keep raising rates? They're they're definitely going to keep raising rates. Um, oh, okay. There, there's no reason for them to not continue to raise rates. At the end of the day, we're still seeing inflation well above what we want it to be at. Even if it comes in short, I don't, I don't know what their expectation is. I think it's like seven point two. But even if we came into the seven, um, you're you're still looking. You, you want inflation to be around a two. So we're still well above where we actually want to be. The only thing that raising rates does is if we can slow down the pace of inflation and get back down to a two, then we can start easing back. But until then, I, w I wouldn't anticipate any significant changes. Um, it's good news seeing inflation start to tamper a little bit, come down a little bit. But at the same time, it's, it's nowhere near where we would want it to be economically. We want to see 2% inflation. That's the number we want to be at. It's it's nice to see it come in light, lighter than expectation, but still seven is not a pretty number. No, I got you there. And you know, Dave, you got a degree in finance from Bradley University here in Illinois. You got to have some input on this. What's your take? Well, I, you know, I have to agree at this point. I, I kind of, I'm a very optimistic person by nature though. And I'm, I'm kind of hoping that things slow down. Uh, Two percent, boy! If we could get to that, it, back to that, it would be amazing. I question whether that's very likely in the next couple of years, at least through the end of uh, of this president's term. Um, and I—that's not a criticism of the president. It's just the economics that you see. You've got the war. There's a lot the, of stuff going on. Yeah, and stuff that went on. That right. still needs to be corrected on. Absolutely. Right. I mean, you're still seeing the uh, the ripple effect of uh, of the COVID lockdowns and the things that had to be done to uh, to keep the economy from imploding. Right. You know. So until that's all the way through the uh, through the pipeline, it's hard to see a a two percent inflation rate. But uh, God bless. You know, I, but looking at it you know, from a perspective standpoint, you and I are old enough to remember when things were considerably different. And as long as yeah. you can look towards the future, um, you know, I have to say, and I know it's self-serving to say that from a guy who's in real estate, but uh, I have to say you have to look to the, to the long term when you're considering making an investment. Joey, what was the highest mortgage rate you ever paid? The highest mortgage rate I ever paid. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I don't want to tell you. So, <laughs> but I will. Four and a quarter. Ouch. Dave, what was the highest one you ever paid? Uh, it was about three times that. 
Yeah, so was, around the 16 markers. So. Well, yeah, I was. We were talking uh, yeah. earlier when I lived in New York, um, way, way back in the day. <laughs> interest rates were 17 percent. And, and that's I, what I was about yeah. to add in. I was 19, I think, oh, somewhere yeah. in that ballpark, was yeah. my first house, and I, you know, so even though I got a real nice, you know, very small mortgage and a very small mortgage rate, um, yeah, I'm pretty happy, you know, being as sure. low as it is now compared to the 19 plus that I, I paid for back in 1991 when I bought my first home. So it is pretty amazing when it comes to all that. And then Joey, one other thing too, before we. You know, because I'm always interested in finances and, and what people do. And when I was the president of our pension board on the fire department for a while, I did that for like six years. I remember that when we invested our funds and our money, you know, either we would go heavy in stocks and then we had a big stock crash and then we would switch all that money and go over to bonds until our financial advisors saw that, you know, they felt we were at the bottom. So then they wanted us to go ahead and start buying more stocks because we lost money on stocks, gained money on bonds, and then we just crushed it when it came to repurchasing those stocks at a lower rate. And they all came up there. So I heard you talk a little bit about switching to bonds. Am I hearing you right? You're saying it's not yet the time to start investing in the bonds or and stick with the stocks or not? No, not necessarily. I, there, there's just a lot of activity in the market, both for stocks and bonds of people buying. Um, and it's because, I don't know, I think there's unwarranted anticipation of a positive uh, outcome from this Fed minutes release. But it, it ha- that's the way it always happens. I mean, I, I also try to be an optimistic person, but I also don't see necessarily the reason for this much optimism after a single inflation report came in a little bit light. Mm-hmm. It's, I, I think it's a little premature. Um, but in terms of investing in stocks, just our pension board, um, they, they like to see a 3% or higher return, right? And that's I mean, that's where, I'm sorry, bonds. Um, and then the, the, right now the, the tenure is trading at a 3.7% uh, yield, right? So that's still an investable number. It's still a good time to buy bonds. Um, and bonds are usually, good. that's gonna be your safe haven to store your money to get some sort of return while the stock markets are maybe not performing as well. So I think that we will see more people buying into bonds in the short term, well, in the short term, I, because at the end of the day, I still believe we are going to be in a recession, right? So if you put your money in the bonds, you know it's a safe investment for now, and then once the stock market comes back and you can move your money back into stocks, then I mean, you're, you're gonna start you know, seeing some some pretty strong yield, I would imagine. And Dave, you add in on this. I mean, Joey mentioned that we're going to be going into, or he believes that we're going to be going into a recession. But really, isn't that always the case? We're always going to be doing a pendulum swing. We're either going to be leaning, even if it's ever so slightly, towards inflation, or we're going to be swinging towards recession. You know, either way, I, I know there's definitions to both of those terms. But very rarely do you get that pendulum struck smack dab in the middle. Well, you never do, but that's the objective, is to get a, 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 a time of stability where you're, those things aren't hanging over your head and influ- over-influencing your decisions on how to invest. And, uh, and th- that makes it so difficult. How long is the war in Ukraine going to last? Somebody tell me. You know, you don't yeah. know. Again, it goes back to predicting the future. Right, right, right. But uh, so, no, I think I think what Joey is talking about is is the safe approach towards investing your money. I mean, you, what you give up is a potential of return, but you got to be able to sleep at night. I love it. You know, you got to sure sleep at night. So now, you know, I want to get to more about you a little bit and, and some of your knowledge that I, I respect so much. So I know you're big on investment properties, mm-hmm. and, I, and I'd like to start there. And the last time we had you on here, you were talking to us about um, storage facilities. Right. Can mm-hmm. you go into detail on that more and why you think those are such good investments? Well, everybody has seen and drives by every day uh, these large storage facilities that have been built. and they're Seems great. like there's more of those popping up than Starbucks and banks. Oh, my God. It's unbelievable. Yeah. But it's interesting because the, the demographics and the, uh, the financial uh, realities of today are such that there is still a huge market for those things. Give Amazing. You, give you an example. In uh, the state of Florida, for example, there are 
there's double the penetration per capita of storage facilities and storage What does that space. mean? Talk to me well, like somebody, because I am that guy, somebody who has no clue what the heck you're talking about. Well, one of the metrics in self-storage is how many square feet of storage are available for per capita per okay. person. For population, got right. it. For population within a one, three, and five mile radius All of right. that facility. And so if it meets certain criteria, it's a good time to, to build. If it's if it doesn't meet that criteria, well, we look for somewhere else to build. But the point is that it's double the penetration in Florida than it is in the United than it is in Illinois, for example. And they're still building them in Florida. Now, when you say double the penetration, does that mean there's twice as many square footage storage than there is population? Twice twice as much uh, square footage per capita. Per available in Florida than there is here. And Florida so you, has a lot of big cities. It's got a lot of big cities. It's got a, it also has a lot of elderly, obviously. They you, do. You know, yeah. it's God's little waiting room, right? I think. So. Yeah, I think it's a law. I'm <laughs> yeah, not yeah, too yeah, sure. You if you get over move. seventy or eighty right, or whatever right, right. that number is, you have to go to Florida. Yeah, but the interesting thing is, so many uh, so many people will downsize their homes, move to Florida, or just downsize where they're uh -huh. living, and they've got nowhere to put all of this stuff, but they can't get rid of it. Their kids don't want it, and they end up storing it and then when you have a, a, a an economic situation that is that you know some people are afraid that uh, we're going to get into a situation where there are going to be a lot of short sales and foreclosures now and whatnot I don't know whether that's entirely true I think there are a few more um, uh, protections in place safeguards there were, yeah, and so forth than there yeah. were in 2006 I agree and then from what I understand I don't think there's a lot of bank-owned properties right now either that they're holding in reserves I know that drove down the house prices quite a bit back then. Yes. And, I, and I'm sorry, I didn't mean to change no, the no, subject no. there. Go back to the per capita, because that's really interesting. You know, so, and they're still building those storage facilities in Florida. In Florida and New York and other places like that. So what what we concentrate on, and I, I use the collective we uh, for the, the people I work with, developers, builders, and investors, whatnot, we're working primarily in the Midwest. And there are opportunities in Wisconsin, Indiana, yes, Illinois, believe it or not, and, uh, and Michigan as well, uh, but uh, really all over the country. If the metrics work, um, it's a good investment source. You buy it at one capitalization rate, which is simply a, a measure of profitability, and uh, you increase that, that uh, as you go along and as you slowly raise rates. Uh, perhaps expand the the number of places you have available uh, for people to rent, and when it becomes a very very uh, safe haven for 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 a real estate investment. Now you also put together groups, yes, for investors in that. Mm -hmm. And if somebody wants to get involved in that, what is the minimum amount of capital? Do they need to join into this group that you put together? Well, that I put together, it starts at $100,000. 100000 okay. Usually, um, what I call that is tip of the spear money, which is uh, money that a, a developer would like to use before he or she uh, goes to the bank and gets that construction loan. Um, and uh, there's typically about $2 million that we spend in uh, vetting that program, designing it, going through the entitlements, the uh, the permits, the everything that needs to be done up front. And then those uh, those investors either get a piece of the, uh, uh, the equity when I turn around and sell that property within two to four years. Or they can they can make an arrangement to be taken out after the funding and construction loan is complete and the returns. What would be the options of either one of those? Well, um, and talk to me as if yeah. I want to be one of your investors in that. I'm going to go borrow money from Joey so I can give it to you. <laughs> okay. Get right. ready, Joey. Get ready. Uh, well, in all guy. honesty, I got, you're, a guy. You're, <laughs> I got a guy for sure. Um, we're looking at uh, at about twenty percent per year. That's amazing. Well, it's it's a, it's a a different kind of investment. It's not buying bonds. I mean, there are the biggest risk. This has been a very very safe haven when you compare it to other commercial real estate investment opportunities. Okay. Because the market is so solid, banks love lending on these things because they rarely, if ever, fail. It's just a a very very stable type of business. But. Um, 
you, what we want to do is build more of these things where it makes sense. So, but not too much because then it doesn't make sense anymore. Right, right, right. But we'll do we'll do one at a time. One up, perhaps in the Madison, Wisconsin area. I'm making these up. One perhaps uh, around Indianapolis, and a couple not in Cook County. I'm sorry to say, uh, Cook County is a difficult market to work in. But we work in the collar counties around uh, uh, Chicago. We've got one uh, being completed near Rockford. Another that we're looking at uh, a little bit closer in that I can't divulge and have to kill you. I'm sorry. No, please don't. Yeah, I know. And uh, <laughs> things like that. But it, it, anyway, the um, the objective is to build them. It'll take a year to two years to get everything done and then maybe 10 months for construction. And then you want to ramp up a little bit. And then the real estate investment trusts out there, the ones who own places like Life Storage or Metro, uh, all of those kind of things. They have an insatiable appetite because it is such a stable return on their investment. So when we get that to a point, it could be anywhere from 20% to 80% uh, ramped up, they make us a heck of an offer. And so the people that are uh, have come in as tip of the spear money people that want a piece of it, they basically double their money in four years. That's still pretty amazing. Yeah, you don't yeah, hear that kind of return, especially with that kind of stability, you know, anywhere. And that's why this intrigues me so much. And yeah, and I don't want to uh, sound like a sales guy, which no. I am, but I mean, that's a real in, that's a real easy uh, subject to Google and read up on. So anybody who has ever thought of investing in that kind of thing, do your homework. And what would they search for then? Well, just um, give me the keywords. Sure, self storage as an investment. Okay, you know, self storage as an investment. That's great. Self storage, uh, the self storage market. Uh, And now, are there big groups out there doing exactly the same thing? Is there a bunch of them? Yeah, there are basically two uh, uh, two business models. One is to build from the ground up, and then either hold uh, uh, hold it or flip it. And we're doing the flips right now. Once we get it, we get them built up. Or the, you look for places that are mom and pops, because the mom and pop self storage market is still what dominates the market as a whole. Isn't okay. it amazing though? Yeah. But that mom and pop is the same in real estate, as far as agents go. The same in home inspectors, as far as we yeah, go. Right. Most of us are single one man people. You yeah. know, shops that are going on there, and that's the same thing in the storage facility. Yeah. But you really think about that's the whole United States of America. That's the power of our economy. Are these small mom-pa's self-businesses and stuff. But just like if you were to own a, a, a small, maybe a 20,000 square foot uh, uh, facility, or, and that's small by today's standards, um, th- these folks are happy with the return they're getting, but they don't expand, they don't update, they don't turn some of their, uh, their uh, facility into uh, climate control, which is a, it takes it to a whole new level. So what I've pe- seen those. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, and that's all we build, basically. Uh, so there are opportunities to go to a mom and pop, evaluate the market, evaluate that, and purchase a mom and pop, expand your facility, expand your number of square foot, uh, square feet that you're offering as, uh, as rental, and really turn into something uh, much greater. And I know I, I work with guys who are taking that approach towards... Uh, towards their business plan as well. I think that's a great approach doing it. And and Joey, do you, is there, now when you write loans and stuff like that, I know there's more than just FHA, VA and, and typical mortgages and stuff. You, there's other types of loans. Can people actually borrow money at a low rate to invest in something like this? Is that doable or is that not doable? So, I mean, it, uh, yes and no, right? I, I it's always I it depends, isn't it? Yeah, well, I think uh, last time Dave was on, we talked about um, the properties that he's typically, you're usually going over four units, right? You're more in the commercial space, I believe. Correct, correct. Most of the time, most of the time, that's true. Yeah, so if you're buying a one to four four unit investment property, there's absolutely loans that you can do. Um, We have portfolio products for it because Fannie and Freddie have really um, priced themselves out of the space. it's tough to get a 30-year fixed on yeah. a uh, on an investment property right now if you're going Fannie Freddie. However, there's lenders like bank, bank lenders um, that create portfolio programs 
that can allow for the lower rates. Um, and because they are not being sold in the secondary markets, there's usually not going to be PMI attached to them, even if you're putting less than 20% down. Um, not to be pitching myself and sound like a sales guy. I know yesterday I just got an investment property and it's a four unit. They're putting 15% down. Uh, they got a six and a quarter on the rate. And um, That sounds good though, it, isn't it? Or is that... It's, average so these are going to be arms that's the thing that okay. you have to understand they're going to be arms so an adjustable rate mortgages uh, our investment product is it's a three one arm right so as long as cash flow makes sense and you understand what's going on in the market it can be a great tool for an investor to use um but if you're going into the commercial space i can't really speak to that because I am not a commercial lender. Um, I don't really know the commercial space. So that's where we really go to, to Dave to uh, you know learn more. Sure, um, Joey, may I ask, uh, when you're writing a loan for a, a two to four unit, is, uh, is it imperative that that, uh, that property be fully stabilized? What does that mean, fully stabilized? Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, it's uh, it's fully. T you've got occupied? tenants. It's occupied in each one of the units. So okay. your cash flowing and your cash flow can be proved up. Gotcha. I mean, here it is, as opposed to uh, uh, an opportunity that you know you're going to get, but it's not currently, it's not currently uh, cash flowing to that. Before level. you answer that, Joey, and I do want to get back to it, Dave. If somebody has questions about investment properties or buying commercial, how do they get hold of you? The easiest way is give me a call or text me, 773-641-9450. Uh, Say it again, please. 773-641-9459. And please do not worry about texting me uh, on a weekend or off hours. I love it. I'm not a nine to five guy at all. It's just not not the way we work. And it's all about answering questions and, and giving people knowledge and that's why I respect you so much. Joey, how about you? How do how do people get hold of the world's okayest mortgage dude? <laughs> so I can be called or texted at any time at six three zero two three five two four zero five. If you're having Thanksgiving dinner and you think of a mortgage question, oh my god, you can text it over to me. My wife will kill me. Uh, I'll kill yeah, you. That's all horrible. Over, on social media at all over social media as the VA loan nerd. I do like that. The VA loan nerd. I you know, on social media. Too, and again, my name is Charlie Belfontaine. I own Chicagoland Home Inspectors. Our website is www.thehomeinspectors.com. That's plural. That's an ORS, and that's a dot com. And our phone number is area code 312-544-9180. And we are in the process of building content into our real estate education site. Most of that content is going to end up being free. I know Joey and I just did a, a recording that I'm on the process of getting that uploaded there now about the minimum property requirements when you're purchasing a VA or a FHA mortgage. Both of those come into play. That website is Home Inspection University of Illinois, and that's H-I-U-I-L.com. Again, that's H-I-U-I-L.com. If you sign up there and you make an account and you want to learn about home inspecting and you know or anything else, we're going to start building the content there. And again, most of that stuff's going to be free. Just go ahead and reach out to me, and we'll go from there. So where do we leave off? You know, before I started talking about the school and that, we were talking about U.S. Joey on. Yeah, on uh, whether he, whether you're writing loans uh, based on uh, full occupancy, full stabilization, or how do you, how you look at that. Yeah, so when we send out the appraiser, they're going to do a uh, uh, rent report on it, mm -hmm. and we will take the uh, the assumed rents that the appraiser throws on the report. We'll be able to use 75% of that as uh, our assumed rental income. Now, when you get the assumed rental, is and they're taking the actual numbers that people are paying, but sometimes those are low. Sometimes they're high. Rarely. But most of the time, they're low. But everything's going up now in rents. I don't know what the number is. I, I'm just going to throw out a make-believe number that I'm putting on there. But I'm hearing anywhere from 10 to 20% rent prices are going up. Is, does that both of you guys know any other information on that? Or? Joey, what, what I, I do you mean, think? I would argue rents are going to go up. You know, it's going to continue to happen, especially right now. So much of the work that I'm doing is with investors because, Amazing. you know, primary home buyers are scared of rates. They're scared of the market. They're scared of this, that, and the other. 
Um, if they would stop focusing on rates and look at affordability, I think that they would be more likely to jump at homes. But it's also opening the door to investors being able to buy up whatever they want, really, and then turn it into a rental. And now people who thought they were going to be buying a house are just renting from investors for however long because something will always scare them out of buying. And you're pulling those houses out of the market so our supply and demand changes. And that's going to cause house prices to go up and rentals go up. So I guess the reason why I asked that question, Joey, was to see if, you know, do they use just those numbers or are there other ways to go ahead and find out what those numbers should be? So it, it, it depends on what the situation is. Um, if someone is going to be renting out a previous primary, we can use a lease agreement. But if you are buying an investment property, the appraiser is going to be the one who dictates that. I can't, I can't tell you exactly how they come up with that number. They look at rents for the area. I imagine those are all listed in the MLS. Um, and that is where they're going to pull those numbers from. And then they're going to put it into the rent schedule on the appraisal report. And that's what we'll be able to use for assumed rents, which honestly, 99% of the time more than offsets the future mortgage payment. That's really cool, isn't it? And that's 75% of that you're allowed for, is that considered yeah. your income? But then you still have to be 33 to 50% of that total amount to get your mortgage. I, you know, some of this gets a little confusing to me. Yeah, so if your mortgage payment is gonna be $1,400 and we have a rent schedule that shows us $2,000, if we take 75% of 2,000, we're at $1,500, we're showing you cash flow $100 a month. That's what our assumed cash flow is going to be, right? And and this is just a goofy Fannie Freddie rule that they literally post in their guidelines. I, I can pull it up on the on the Fannie Freddie website and just paste it onto our recording. Please. But um, yeah, no, super easy to find. And uh, that's what we'll use. So if, if, if our assumed rent is gonna be two grand and we're showing 1500 because we use 75% and your mortgage payment is 1400, then we're already positive cash flow. And that's not even, that's not even what your real cash flow is gonna be. We know you're gonna cash flow more, which is all that investors care about. Although right now they're looking at depreciation and a few other things more than cash flow because it's getting a little bit tighter out there. but still a great time to invest. Well, why do you think the cash flow is going to be more? I'm confused here because that's just your mortgage rate that comes okay, in well, there. What about your property taxes, water bills, you know, everything else that's associated with home ownership, taxes that we have to pay? I, I don't think that, that the total of that is going to exceed the 25% is what I'm getting at. Oh. And if, if, and because we're only using the rent schedules that the appraiser's putting in there, if, if your actual rents are gonna be 2,300, you're, you're going to be cash flowing more, right? So these are assumed numbers that are thrown into the appraisal report. Unless there's actual leases on the property, then they can actually throw those in there. If there's not a lease, then they're gonna you know, use comps for assumed rents. Um, but at the end of the day, it's really gonna depend on what your mortgage rate is, what your costs are, and what you're receiving in, in uh, rents. And Dave, typical leases are what? A year? Usually a year, yeah. I mean, and that's that's the good news and the bad news of it all. I mean, you want stability in your tenant base, but you want the ability to um, to get people out if they're not the greatest tenants in the world, and you want uh, the ability to raise those rents if you're an investor purchaser. And what Joey described is exactly the same for commercial, the larger buildings. The sources are a little different. They don't use the MLS for sources on, on that. They'll use Crexy or or CoStar, which are two of the uh, uh, more robust uh, commercial sources for that kind of information. But the idea is, is identical. I mean, it's it's if you're cash flowing, um, it's it makes life so much easier, and it's easy to cash flow as long as you uh, as you as long as you've allowed for uh, repairs and regular maintenance, that sort of thing. Keep your turnover low. Um, most investors will agree it's better to have a stable base than to try to squeeze you know a five percent increase every uh, every 12 months and hope people stay turning over an apartment when somebody leaves can cost them money and uh, and take time off particularly if they're giving uh, uh, commissions to real estate brokers in order to get help them get those things filled so keep it keep it stable don't get too greedy and uh, and uh, in the commercial space, uh, 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 multi-unit buildings are probably the most robust, the most active, and doing about as well as, as, as you'd like. The only other one that compares is industrial building. Warehouse space is incredibly difficult to find. But getting back to 
to multifamily units rentals, yeah, that's still a really good place to be. Now, is there like a magic number? I mean, I'm always afraid, like if I bought a house, house is one renter, right? <clears throat> I'm afraid that if I that building goes vacant, now I'm paying the mortgage, I'm paying all the utilities, yeah. I'm paying uh, the maintenance, I'm doing everything on that property. And the longer it goes empty, the I lose I lose income. I, I look at it the same way, Charlie. I, I do, you know, but I get into uh, arguments with investors all the time. It depends on what their strategy is and, and what they're used to doing and what they're comfortable with. But right. yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. I'd rather have one six unit building than six individual single family homes. And that's where I was going. Is yeah. there like a certain number? Is that six unit kind of the safe haven where, you know, you figure that I'm going to have five of them occupied and then one's going to be being rehabbed and it's going to be like an ongoing rotating basis? Or? Well, well, even in even in the non-commercial space that's, that Joey is dealing with right now, I'd rather recommend somebody get a four unit than a two unit for four that very, unit. you know, okay. for, for that or a three. Uh, but anything that softens the blow of having one of those, uh, one or more of those renters leave. Here's how I look at um, at doing a a, um, a purchase recommendation for an investor on a multi-unit building. One of the first things I look at is, of course, who's paying the utilities, right? Because if you've got an individual furnace in each one of the units, there the the uh, um, Tenants are paying the utilities that brings down your expenses, which increases your net operating income at the end of the year. But one of the other things I look at is what their um, what their tax bill looks like, and if they can be paying taxes that are less than two months worth of their gross income, they can usually make things worth work. That's interesting. Say that again one more time. Okay. Uh, you've got 12 months of income on, right. a, on a multi-unit building. If your property taxes are less than two months worth of that income, or one-sixth of your gross income, you can usually make that work. Uh, what, you know, when I see two, two and a half months of their total gross rent going towards the property taxes, it really squeezes the, the ability to come out with a good, what we call a capitalization rate, or just a return on your investment. That's a, it's just a really rough rule of thumb. It's not written anywhere. It's something I came up with, and it's purely based on my experience on how I've been able to make deals work or what, where I've had trouble. And you, and you got experience with all that stuff, so that means a lot to me. That's actually a pretty good, nice... You know, I love general rule of thumbs. I really do. It makes life a whole lot easier. I got you. And then it goes back to something my, you know, my dad taught me when I was very young. You know, pigs get fat and hogs get slaughtered. So when you talk about getting too greedy, you know, it's okay to be a little piggy, but we don't want to become a hog when it comes to the greed because that usually ends up backfiring on us. Right. And, and that's what I'm hearing from what you're sharing. Yeah. And I think one thing I'd want to caution investors, one of the biggest problems that uh, that they run into, uh, frankly, is they sometimes get lazy and they don't, they don't uh, um, protest their taxes. That get should be done a, almost every yes. year. Get my wife the, is you know. adamant about that. Yeah. So, Marty, I love you. Thank you for keep appealing our taxes every single year. And surprising, they, they lower them. I mean, it's just the shut-up money. I get it. But usually it comes back with just a little bit of lowering. We don't hire attorneys. We don't go to court. We don't do any of that stuff. Right. I've got horror stories uh, that would take a lot longer than we have this morning. But, um, yeah, you, you, you need to do that. It makes a profound impact. And uh, generally, an attorney will take a, a portion of what he or she saves you by by doing that appeal. Uh, but it is worth every nickel. Um, it's and the difference is I I know of properties that I'm working on right now where they are adjacent to one another, and one person's property uh, taxes uh, in a relatively comparable space is half of what the people are are paying um, next door in bridge my eyebrows bridge, are raised right yeah, up in, in surprise because she's never the the owner of this uh, place that i'm trying to help her with has never gone through that process has never taken the trouble maybe did not know what was available to her can you recover from that i mean can you if you got because that's a, a comparable if somebody else was doing this right yeah, right 
at their identical buildings and they're right across the street from each other. Can you use that as a comparable to get your taxes now yes, lower? Yes, that, that's, that's what they do. Hey, the guy next door is paying X. Why am I paying Y? And uh, that's the fundamental concept of appealing your taxes. Uh, and some of these folks are very, very good at it, but they'll take 25 to 33% of whatever they save you. But if you're not currently But that's a one-time it, fee. It is a one-time fee. Every time they, right. they, they do that, that's correct. It's not such a bad thing. I know it's a lot of money. It's a big chunk of change. But, yeah, if you have the knowledge and you could do it yourself, that's one thing. I get it. It's the same thing like if I know how to put in a, an electrical panel and I don't have to hire an electrician, right, right, right. I get to save a lot of money. But people don't realize in the trades, 50% of the cost is typically labor, whereas now in the courts, it's 33% of the cost is typically labor. Right. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, I, th I think it is. And uh, But I would anybody who's in that situation... Just do your homework. Again, Google you know, tax appeals, how to appeal taxes in Cook County. Another big bonus. Right. And they can reach you also to yeah. go ahead and get some advice and talk to you. I know you don't stay quiet you know, about helping people. You know, you're pretty open with everything else. And for that, mm -hmm. I appreciate. And I'm going to throw a little shout out to BNI. That's how I met Dave. He's in the BNI chapter that I just recently joined less than a year ago. And I just thought he was an outstanding person. And same thing, anyone who's listening to this show, if you're interested in getting involved in a referral-type uh, program, which is Business Networking International, please reach out to either one of us. We'd love to have you over as a visitor in the chapter and see if it's a good fit for you. I'm, I'm going to switch up the subject a little bit. And, Joey, I'm, I'm going to probably need your help and Dave chime in on this. I've been hearing about people that are doing buy downs. I don't know what this means. I'm not a mortgage guy. You know, they're they're lowering their rates by putting more up front. Is that a correct statement? Yeah, so um, there's two types of buy downs. Uh, there are temporary buy downs and there are uh, permanent buy downs, right? So essentially you are paying X amount of dollars to buy down your rate X amount percent, right? Uh, the difference between a temporary buy down and a permanent buy down is on a temporary buy down. Usually you're looking to use seller credit to do this, but what you're able to do is there's a few of them, but let's take a two one buy down for example, right? So if the going rate today is a six and a half and you do what's called a two one buy down, your first year of mortgage payments would be at a four and a half. It would be 2% lower than the six and a half. And that's what, and that's the, what the two means in two one, right? Correct. And okay. then in the second year, then you're going to a five and a half. And then in the third year, you would be at a six and a half. The way that's paid for is that the seller or the builder or someone who isn't you is essentially prepaying the interest at closing, right? Um, they're subsidizing the interest payment for those future payments. And if you refinance before you ever hit that third year, the money that's in that subsidy account would be applied towards your principal. So it's not just lost, right? So that's wow. why- that, that's, that's actually why sounds pretty good. Yeah, that's why it's so attractive right now, right? Because you're not the one prepaying that interest. The seller's prepaying it for you. And if you refinance before the term expires, then you still get that those funds applied to principal. Uh, the permanent buy downs, that's, that's buying points, right? So if you buy one point, which is equal to 1% of the loan amount, you can, and right now in, in this market, typically you would expect to, well, here, typically you would expect one point to get you a quarter. I was able to do one point to get a full six eighths off rate recently, and that's because we're in a period of margin compression. Uh, essentially, investors are trying to avoid having rates go too high because they run the risk of early payoffs in the next year, two years, three years. They don't want people to be able to refinance that quickly because they lose money. So rather than in continuing to increase uh, rates, you start seeing more origination being charged because you can't even get on a rate sheet unless you charge origination or you see people buying points because margins are so compressed you can you can use that point to buy significantly more rate than you would normally be able to and the reason that's attractive is because if rates are at six and a half right now and a point gets you down to a five and an eighth you're not likely to be able to refinance the next year three three years or so right or two two or three years unless the markets improve significantly. So it works for the investor, it works for you. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, that's buy downs and that's why uh, we, we see significant uh, improvement on rate even at a point right now. It's uh, margin compression, it's a real thing, it's a tough thing to deal with, but if the numbers make sense for the buyer and for the investor, then it could be a win-win for everybody. 
Joey Matthews of the Federal Savings Bank. How do people get hold of you if they want to talk more and learn more about this? For sure. So um, my number is 630-235-2405. Call or text anytime or find me on social media, uh, either Joey Matthews or look up the VA Loan Nerd on literally any of the platforms. I'm going to be searching that like there's no tomorrow. And Dave, how did they get hold of you? The easiest way is uh, on my cell phone, 773-641-9459. And Dave, you know, when he's talking about, you know, sellers, um, what, what is, help me out with that term again, seller credits? Mm -hmm. And I, I said that right. Seller credits. Sure. Mm -hmm. Okay. And using that for this 2 1 or whatever numbers they're going to be doing on the buy downs where it comes in there. Um, I, I've always used the word power, and, and I think I've been using it incorrectly. And I'm talking about the amount of power that a buyer has when they're purchasing and negotiating. But the real term should be leverage, right? How much leverage do they have to be able to get a favorable deal? And I keep going back to two years ago and last year where the market was so hot, you had six million buyers for every house out there, you know, and then you had a bid 50,000 over cost. You know, granted, you got yourself a year 2% mortgage, which God bless, that's awesome, but you're still ending up paying a boatload more on the house and you couldn't negotiate for anything. It, you know, it, it might not have had a, a sewer line in it, but tough cookies, you're gonna buy it anyway and spend another 30,000 on that if you want the house or someone else will. Is that still the same today? And I know the answer, but I wanna hear it from you. Well, you know, I, I have to defer a little bit to Joey here because I'm not doing as much uh, residential as I was, but it, it just in terms of, but you and I have done like four deals uh, for inspections over the last four weeks. I'm, I are, feel so sorry I, for you. I should apologize over and over no, again. No, no. Listen, you know? everybody out there, Charlie, this, this is uh, uh, an unforced uh, uh, referral here, but his guys are great. Uh, and he, uh, Charlie himself, came out the other day to do a follow-up visit on a on a furnace that uh, was yeah. questionable. And I, I just can't well, say it's not questionable about, anymore. Yeah, no, no, that, that one's thing, going bye-bye. Yeah, gone, yeah. yeah. But uh, I can't say enough about Charlie and his group. All his guys are great. So I want to thank you very much for that. All right. Well, thank you. That's very kind, and I truly appreciate it. But Joey. How about that question towards you then? Do you see more leverage and more seller credits for this? In other words, is this 2-1 buy-down thing? Is this yeah, becoming so, more and more popular? Uh, yeah, I mean, seller credits in general are becoming more popular because uh, compared to last year, buyers actually have some, some leverage in negotiation, right? You can negotiate price down, you can negotiate uh, seller credits, things of that nature. Uh, obviously, make sure that you're talking with your, your lender to make sure that you're not negotiating too much because there are limits on what you can receive based on loan type, based on down payment amount, things of that nature, right? Give us a rough or idea what those limits are, please. I'm, I'm curious yeah, so, on that. A quick rundown. So if you are buying a, um, an investment property, you're limited to 2% seller credit, period. Can't go over 2%. If you are buying with a conventional loan and you put... Uh, Less than 10% down, you're limited to 3% if, of seller credit. If you are putting 10% um, or more down, you can get up to 6% in seller credit. If you are putting 25% or more down, you can get up to 9% in seller credit. Wow, that's uh, quite a bit. Loan, yep, it, it, it can be, yeah. And, and what's nice about that is if you have that much leverage, you can then use, you can pay off all your closing costs, of course, and then use the rest to buy down rate. Right. And that could be a huge rate buy down. If you, I mean, if you even have the ability to get that far down a rate sheet, um, there is FHA loans. You're limited to 6% across the board. Doesn't matter down payment. And then VA loans, you are limited to, well, not limited. So you're allowed 4% seller concessions, which you can use to pay off debt. You can use for outside of customary buy down of rate and then all closing costs, which allows for also a, uh, the, the, Oh my gosh, I can't think of the word. The uh, marketable amount for a buy down. Usually, anything more than 2% on a buy down is going to be considered non customary, and then you start going against your concession limits. But I've seen VA loans get, you know, up to 8, 9% in total, total seller credit just applied in different ways. It's, it's a beautiful thing. Well, let me get you guys a couple of scenarios and, and tell me how you would handle something like this. So let, let's say they're buying a house, all right, and the house has a collapsed sewer line. 
and we find that during the inspection. They didn't know about it anywhere. It was vacant. And it's going to be a $30,000 repair, and it's a quarter of a million dollar house. What is, and they're putting 20%, or let's say it's FHAVA, whatever those numbers are. How do you guys make something like that work? I mean, obviously, you're not going to lower the price by that much, you know, but, or, or is it? Is lowering the price part of a concession? I don't know. Well, it is in Lowering my world. The price is never a concession. It, it is in my world. Uh, yes. Yeah, very much so because that's the your your example is right on with the exception of the amount of the purchase. Let's say it's a 30-unit building on the south side. I just I just did this as a matter of fact a year ago. 20-unit building on the south side, um, and a similar situation occurred, but the property was um, uh, the property was considerably more. But the, the repair expense was high as well. It's great to offer that off the top, but if you're financing the purchase, that doesn't give you enough money by doing that in order to make the repairs. And that's kind of where I was going. Yeah, you know, we got to yeah. fix the problem, too. Yeah, so, you know, because commercial generally takes longer to get the deal done. In residential, everybody wants to get to the closing table in 30 to 45 days, and God bless if you can make it work. But between environmentals and all of the things that we sometimes deal with in commercial, that can take a lot longer. So what I'll try to do is have the, the seller actually fix that. You know, cure that, uh, cure that uh, uh, problem, and then negotiate how we're going to look at the purchase price in those terms. No, that makes a lot of sense, and I think that's the best for everybody involved. Yeah. Because then you know you already got it fixed in there. Now, do they increase the price of the property when that happens or not? Well, the, the thing about commercial is it, it's kind of the wild, wild west of, okay. of uh, real estate. So anything that works for both sides that's legal is on the table in, in the world that I work with. And most, I mean, what would be illegal? You, you threw that out there. What's, We're not going to talk about that. Oh, gosh, this is one of those, <laughs> no, if I tell you, I kill you yeah, things. Yeah, I have to kill you. Yeah, we uh, don't want that no, to no, happen. No, no, no. I mean, you have to, uh, you know, if you're assuming you're going th uh, through a lender, that it still has to appraise. It still has to make sure, you know, they're not, if there are environmental issues, there are a lot of things that have to be done to meet the, the EPA requirements and things like that. So we want to stay within our lane. But uh, in terms of how the the uh, transaction is actually uh, valued and okay. pulled out, as long as all sides are in agreement, um, you know, we can usually make that happen. And Joey, how do you treat as the the mortgage writer? How do you treat it when the seller of the house actually makes the repairs? So it's not a, a dollar concession; they just fix a problem. Does that come into play at all? Yeah, I mean, if an appraiser notices that a sewer line has collapsed, then obviously um, that, that appraiser will have to go out there and verify that it's fixed. And once it's verified, we're good to go. As long as it mm -hmm. appraises out, you're good to go. Uh, in that situation, if it's like a $30,000 repair like you just mentioned, that's there's no way that I would ever let a client just walk into that. I, I, I would not ask for a credit for that. I would ask for that to be repaired. Period. Absolutely. I mean, that's, yeah. Yeah, yeah there, I, you know, I agree. I stay out of the negotiations. But there's, there's certain things where I'm just not a fan of my clients taking credits for. And, and, you know, stuff like, you know, little things it might be, like a loose toilet. And, you know, it might sound like it's not that big of a deal, but we really don't know if it's just bolts that are loose and just need to be tightened up or if it's a, a cast iron flange that's damaged and now somebody's got to get there and break a connection and put a whole new weld on there. You know, or a floor joist that, that broke or was damaged underneath there that is going to require additional work underneath that uh, that uh, new commode that you may be putting in. No, I got you on that one. But it's, yeah, exactly. But at least if it's a floor joist and I could see it and I know what the problem is, I'm never afraid of an issue that I could see. I'm only right, afraid right. of issues that I can't see. And the loose toilet, yeah, we know it's loose. We know that the wax ring is going to get deteriorated and that toilet, if it's not leaking, is going to be leaking. But I don't know why it's loose. All right. I don't know if the bolts are broken. I don't know if the flange is broken or the toilet's broken. There's too many unknowns. I mean, it could be a cheap fix for getting a handyman in there and tightening up a few nuts. And, you know, you're good to go for 50 bucks, you know, or it could be a $2,000 bill. Right. 
that comes in there. So, and with our with my clients, I like them to know the risk that they're going to assume. And until we could do a little more exploratory, we're just not going to know. And that's where I guess I was going with you guys is, you know, with the leverage that we're seeing, I'm seeing, and I know you're more in a commercial, but I'm still seeing more people are able to negotiate for more things after the inspection. Do you think that's a fair statement or? Well, yeah. Um, Again, I, I would I would defer somewhat to Joey because in, in my world, it's it's you're negotiating almost until you get to the closing table. Really? Yeah. yeah retail and commercial are very different different yeah. spaces for sure. That would drive me nuts. I, I would <laughs> never be able to do that. That's I hate negotiating. I hate this <laughs> bargaining. I hate you know. I, I get frustrated. Anytime anybody even asks me for a discount. Well, that's why I know? drink, Charlie. I'm. I'm <laughs> I'm oh very, my gosh! I'm very comfortable in this space. <laughs> oh, geez, Almighty! So, you know, when you're not at the bar drinking, yeah, how yes. do people get hold of you, Dave? Uh, the same way: seven seven three six four one nine four five nine. And don't be afraid to call or text uh, off hours. Okay. Sounds good. And Joey, how do they get hold of you? Uh, my cell phone at six three zero two three five. Two four zero five, or find me on social media, Joey Matthews, the VA Loan Nerd. You know, I want to make sure that we talk about who would be a great negotiator for this or to help with the negotiations. Patrick Loftus of Loftus Law. You know, great guy, 773-632-8330. Thank you very much for doing that. And Patrick is normally with us every week. And yeah, he was so apologetic that he couldn't make it today. I mean, he ended up doing, I think he's got like two or three closings. So I'm very happy that he's staying busy. Patrick is such a, a blessing, Joey, and I know you agree with this. Another wealth of knowledge willing to share everything with us. So, Patrick, I'm sorry you're not here. I wish you were here. But, yes, anybody who's involved in real estate, you definitely want to get hold of Patrick where it comes to it. We're getting towards the end of the time frame that we have here. We only got a couple minutes left. Um, with that, I do want to give a shout out to our producer a little bit early. His name is Devin Tingle, and he's the one that makes everything go. So, yeah, a little applause. I wish I had one of those. There it is. I think I heard an applause button go off, which is fantastic. Um, Joey, any any words of wisdom with the changing of stuff? Because I, I know that, you know, from what I'm hearing from you, interest rates are going to, even though they're not going to go up as fast, as they have in the last year, they're they're still going to rise. That's the the feeling that I'm getting listening to you guys. The the Fed funds rate's going to rise for sure, right? And what does that mean I, to the mortgage? So it doesn't necessarily mean that the 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 actual mortgage rates are rise. What what, what we look at is stability in the market, right? Um, the seventy five bips increase 075 percent over and over. I mean, we we've, we've gone to a four percent uh, Fed funds rate in nine months that's it's unheard of we haven't seen something like that since uh 1979 1981 time frame um and we went through massive inflation in the 80s and then we had to correct all that in the 90s once we see once we see the correction once we see um uh a recession inflation get under control i mean your mortgage rates are going to tamper down right I, I have a feeling that something's going to happen Q2 2023. We'll see Q2 quarter two of 2023, starting in April. Uh, I believe that it's going to be a decent rate market. But again, that's just speculation. Um, the biggest thing I have to tell people, look at affordability. You, you stop, stop being so hyper-focused on rate. You're able to get deals. You're able to negotiate. Last year, you couldn't do anything. You were just like, you know what? I got a 3% and I'm just going to overpay seconds. for a house. Focus on affordability. Don't get stuck on rate. I'll stop talking because I know we have. <laughs> You're awesome. Well, everybody, thank you for listening. Dave Urbaniak of App Properties Commercial Division. Thank you. This is Charlie Belfontaine, and I am out. Mm-hmm.